0: On today's episode, I'll be covering a couple of random movies I've been wanting to talk about, starting with My Cousin Vinny from 1992 and Stand By Me from 1986. everyone, welcome to Brandon at Random Reviews. I am your host, Brandon Griffiths. Thank you for stopping by, I do appreciate it. Today on the show, like I said, I've got a couple of just random movies, just nothing thematic about them at all, nothing to really connect them, but I just really love them, so I really want to talk about them. But first, I think I've talked about before... I have a bad habit of buying movies that I've never seen because I find them on sale or something and I usually just buy them and then I put off watching them which is the worst like nothing tells you that you've made a bad decision more than buying a movie and telling yourself you're going to watch it but knowing that you don't immediately want to put it on and watch it that's just not a good sign so these are some movies that I actually own. And I have them in a list on my on the voodoo digital purchase of movie. You know, like it's a service for purchasing movies and TV shows. And I own these movies and I bought them. And when I watched them, I had to put them into a list that is simply titled Never Again. And it's for one reason or another, it's not even necessarily all bad movies. It's just a lot of movies that I have no desire to ever sit through again. And it's as simple as that. So here's some ones that are on this list. So the butterfly effect with Ashton Kutcher, I just didn't really find this movie appealing at all. I don't really understand. I've heard people talk about it, and I knew going in that I had only heard polarizing things about this movie. Like people who love it say that they fucking love it. You know, they just, oh man, you got to check it out. It's fucking great. And then there are other people that are like, yeah, it's just okay. I mean, I don't really think it was anything special, but I mean... That was my perspective is it's like I watched it and I'm like, I don't really enjoy this. Like, this is not entertaining to me. This is just unpleasant. Like, it's just dark and it's I don't really care for the story at all and the concept behind it. It's just it's not very it doesn't really grab me. You know, it doesn't really do a whole lot for me. So I just kind of tucked that one away and said, fuck this. I'm never doing this again. Then there's a movie called Mother that I actually covered, I believe, on my blog. And it's a movie featuring Javier Bardem and Jennifer Lawrence. And it is basically like one big biblical allegory. And it is just way too fucking much. I mean, it is just, it's not a fun watch. And it's just really, it gets very wildly unpleasant throughout the movie. Like, it just keeps getting worse. And you're just like, what the actual fuck is this? Why did this get made into a movie? So, I mean, there's that. I mean, I I'm, and I'm not a religious person, too, so that probably doesn't help. I don't really enjoy the religious-themed things, so I kind of push those things away, typically. And I also have the burden of, my big thing is I don't want to know what's going on with a movie. Like, I don't want to know what the story even is with a movie I want to just go in and watch it and not know anything about it. And I did that with Mother, and it was just god-awful. Then we have, and this one might ruffle some feathers, but Army of Darkness, the Sam Raimi movie, the third Evil Dead movie starring Bruce Campbell, and it's like he's in, I want to say it was like medieval times. I just don't like the humor of the Evil Dead movies. I don't find them enjoyable. I don't think that what they go for as humor is actually funny. I'm definitely not laughing at it. And that's not to say that I laugh at everything that I find funny. But in this particular instance, I find it actively not funny. Like, I'm just like, no, no, thanks. I'm good. And I I feel the same way about the other two. But I actually bought that one thinking maybe it'd be different because it seemed different based on the cover and all of that stuff. But it's not really truly Much different from the Evil Dead movies. I mean, honestly, like in in terms of tone and things like that. So next up, we have The Omen, the original from 1976. And I think I saw the remake as well. These movies are fucking terrible. I mean, I own the original. I don't own the remake. And the original is just fucking painfully boring. I mean, it is just not a good time. And it's like, I don't know if they really thought that it was scary, this, like, little kid that's supposed to be possessed by Satan or whatever, but I just, I watched it, and I'm like, fuck this, like, this is not good at all. It really bothers me when I watch a horror movie, and nothing even jumps out at me as, like, a scary moment. It's one thing to say, overall, a movie is not scary, but to watch a movie that you're expecting to be scary and have it just be flat the whole time with, like, no increases in adrenaline or whatever, you know, not even having a single moment to talk about. That's a problem. And then the other one that's a similarly a horror movie type is The Wicker Man, the original, which was remade with Nicolas Cage in the 2000s, I believe it was. But I mean, the original, it's just the guy that plays the main character is a lot more likable than Nicolas Cage could ever be because he's Nicolas Cage and. I don't care what people say about Nicolas Cage. I think his overall demeanor is fucking terrible. It's just not enjoyable to watch Nicolas Cage in anything. I mean, basically, this guy is, he comes to this really remote town and they, I mean, the whole time, basically, you know what's going to happen to this dude. You know that he's fucked and it's like, they kind of like build up the whole thing. Like, you don't know that's coming and you're like, what the fuck is this? Like, why am I watching this? I don't know. I just, I have a hard time with that one. I I was really disappointed because I heard it was like really good and all this stuff. Then there's How the West Was Won. And I believe I also covered this on my blog. This one was like a big ensemble cast and it was a Western and it had like Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne and a whole bunch of other people. And it's just like what are we talking about? You know, I mean, like they they shot this whole movie in this like super duper widescreen format that they were testing out. And it was like, it didn't really look good. It doesn't look good on the small screen. And the problem was, is the story wasn't compelling enough to be good despite that. So that's the biggest issue with that movie. Then there's uncut gems with Adam Sandler. And I was talking to a guy at work about this. He said he had watched it and he really didn't like it. And I just remember watching it and I didn't think it was a terrible movie, but I also said that it was not a movie I ever need to see again because it was just like a, really just an anxiety inducing disappointment. I mean, it was like, I got the point of it and this guy just keeps making these awful decisions and then he compounds additional bad decisions on top of them what what is the point of this but it's like the friend from work that I was talking about he knew that Adam Sandler like it was supposed to be a serious movie but he was a fan of Adam Sandler's comedies and I love Adam Sandler comedies from like 2001 backward but nothing after that really because most of his comedies to me aren't that good anymore and then we have contact with Jody Foster And this is another one that it wasn't a wholly terrible movie, but after I watched it through and the way they close it out at the end, it's like, it's such a fucking letdown. It just kind of slaps you in the face and you're just like, oh, fuck you, like, get the hell out of here. The next up, I'll just lump these two together because basically my criticisms are the same. Lawrence of Arabia and Ben-Hur. These are both movies that are around four hours long, I believe, And they're widely regarded as some of the greatest movies ever made. And neither of them was even worth watching one time for me. I couldn't fucking find any goodness in them. I was just like, this is fucking dull and boring. Why am I sitting through this? Why are people telling me that this is good? Then there's Letters from Iwo Jima. And I like Clint Eastwood movies when he directs them. I usually think that they're pretty decent But he does have a tendency to go for the boring stuff. Like he, a lot of his movies are not particularly fast paced or exciting. They're just fucking snooze fests, honestly. And this movie was like the prime example of that. It was just not a terrifically good movie. I just thought it was, eh. It was nothing. I mean, I didn't feel anything for it, and I didn't really want to ever sit through it again. It was one of those movies that's very well-regarded by a lot of critics and things like that, but I don't really care. Then we have Atonement, which has, I believe it's James McAvoy and Keira Knightley. And this one is another one that is like very well-regarded by critics. And all the ratings on all the websites say that it's just an amazing movie. And it's basically like, This little girl accuses James McAvoy of raping her, and then he's in love with Kira Knightley, this other woman, and he basically gets thrown into jail, I think. I can't remember what exactly happens to him, but he ends up in the military, and it's like, essentially, nothing good comes of this story at all. Like, they don't get any, any redemption or anything like that. It's just basically like, this fucking girl made up this story about him for no fucking reason. And it's like, why would you do that? Then there's Murder on the Orient Express. And I can honestly say that this is the only movie that I'll be talking about in this list that is one that I've never finished because I didn't like it so much that it's like something about the way, like I've noticed in like Tim Burton movies, I think I've talked about this before, where it's like, the dialogue and just the way people speak does not seem natural. It doesn't feel real. It feels like cartoonish or something. And this was like no exception. It was like, this isn't a Tim Burton movie, but it's a terrible, it has that terrible feeling of the dialogue not working like it should. So, I mean, that's where I kind of left it. It was like, I started watching it, and I got like 25 minutes in, and everything that had been happening just didn't seem realistic at all, and I was just like, I'm not watching this as a cartoon. I don't fucking care. Then we have In the Name of the Father with Daniel Day-Lewis, which is probably a great movie, honestly, but it's not one that I typically go for, and it's super fucking depressing. It's about this guy, I think he goes to prison, and he has to clear his name, And I just, it wasn't for me. I just couldn't do it. I I love Daniel Day-Lewis, but my God, this was not a good movie. Then we have Synecdoche, New York, which is this super duper art house garbage picture with Philip Seymour Hoffman, who I love. And it's just this goofy concept of like, you don't really ever fucking know, like you don't have a strong narrative and it's like, you're watching him and he's like aging randomly and you don't really know how much time's passing or what's really going on, and it's all very confusing, and I mean, maybe I'm just too dumb to understand it, but I legitimately don't enjoy it. Then there's Somewhere in Time, and this movie stars Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour, and they are in olden times. I don't remember. I think it's like early 20th century, maybe, but it's like they're on at one point... Like, the reason I wanted to watch this so bad is because they shot some of it on Mackinac Island at the Grand Hotel, and that's in Michigan. You know, it's between the Upper Peninsula and the Lower Peninsula, and it's like, I really wanted to see this because of that, but clearly that was not enough to make it a good movie. It was just kind of interesting to see a place that I had been before as, like, featured in a movie, and that was it. Like, I I don't know what else to think about it. So... Second to the last is Enemy with Jake Gyllenhaal. Fucking love Jake Gyllenhaal. He's one of my probably top five favorite actors. And this movie, it just, it was kind of fucking weird and I didn't really enjoy it. It was just, it was like he meets someone who looks exactly like him. And the actual plot of it was not that interesting to me. It didn't really jump off the screen at me and really get me wanting to watch more. And then last but not least, we have Swiss Army Man, which is the one with, I think, Paul Dano and Daniel Radcliffe. And it's like, it's so stupid. I mean, it's one of the, I think Daniel Radcliffe is a dead body and Paul Dano has to like use him. He's a dead body, but he's alive somehow. I kept hearing about this movie and people were talking about it like it was really something special and unique and all this stuff. And, That it is, but it's not in a good way. It's not like they really broke a lot of great new ground that people are gonna be imitating for years to come or something. So yeah, I mean, those are the movies, and that's where I regret. I'll look through my movie collection, and it's like, my God, if there was a return policy on these movies, I would watch them, and I'd be like, oh, fuck, this is not for me, and then I'd fucking return them because that's just how I feel about a lot of them. I mean, obviously, there are like 55 total on my list but uh, I just selected to select few to talk about because I thought it would be kind of fun to to dive into that. So I guess we can dive right into our first movie, My Cousin Vinny, released on March 13th, 1992, directed by Jonathan Lynn, who also directed Clue, which is a solid one. I don't know if I would wholly give it a full recommendation, but I would say I didn't regret watching it and it was It had its funny parts, and it was amusing, so it was not a bad movie. He did Sergeant Bilko, and all I know about that movie is that Steve Martin is standing on the front poster with a golf club, and he's in like a bathrobe, and I don't know, I I can only assume what it would be about, and I just don't think that it's worth watching. There's a lot, I, I love Steve Martin, but there's a lot of Steve Martin movies out there that I have no desire to see ever in my life. And he did The Whole Nine Yards, which is a pretty fucking solid movie, if I remember right. It had Bruce Willis, Matthew Perry, and Amanda Pete in it. And honestly, it was pretty fucking funny, and it was a good story. Really liked that one. I remember the sequel, The Whole Ten Yards, really sucked. But honestly, The Whole Nine Yards was pretty fucking solid, but I haven't seen it in a long time, so don't hold me to that. And then for the writer, we have Dale Launer, and he did Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, which I saw once, and it's one of those ones that I never really need to see again, it wasn't that great. He did Eddie, which I've talked about previously, which is the one where Whoopi Goldberg becomes the coach of the New York Knicks, and I loved it when I was a kid, and I recognize that it is not a good movie. And he also did Blind Date, and I think that's the one with Bruce Willis and Kim Basinger. Never saw it, never really heard great things about it. Probably not worth checking out, honestly. For the producers, we have Dale Launer and Paul Schiff. Schiff did Rushmore, which I believe was a Wes Anderson movie. It was an early Wes Anderson movie with Jason Schwartzman. I think that's his name. He's the lead singer. Well, he's the... in a band that I like called Coconut Records. And Schiff also did Young Guns, the first and second one. I couldn't even get through Young Guns 1. I thought it was terrible. I thought the acting was really shitty. The whole story was just not grabbing me at all, so I just kind of abandoned ship. Then he did Green Street Hooligans, which I absolutely need to go back and watch again because I remember really thinking that movie was awesome when I watched it and... That was probably like 15, 20 years ago now, so I mean, it's probably still good, but I just want to make sure. For the score, we have composer Randy Edelman, and he did The Last of the Mohicans with Daniel Day-Lewis, and that one's solid, definitely worth watching. It's uh, not what I like to watch very frequently, but it's a good movie. He did Billy Madison with Adam Sandler, and that's one of my all-time favorite comedies, and... I remember the music pretty prominently in that movie. It was pretty solid. It had a good comedic score to it. He did While You Were Sleeping, previously covered on this podcast, and he did Anaconda, the movie with Jennifer Lopez, Ice Cube, and John Voight, where they go into the Amazon in South America and look for a tribe, but all the while they're getting like hunted by this giant snake. It is a good watch for like if you feel like putting on a bad movie and making fun of it, because there's a lot to make fun of in that movie. For the cast, we have Joe Pesci, who plays Vinny Gambini, and he was in Raging Bull, which I need to rewatch. That was from 1980, I believe. It had Robert De Niro. It was directed by Martin Scorsese. Definitely a solid movie. Not really sure how bad I need to rewatch it, but I will consider rewatching it at some point, I'm sure. He was in Goodfellas. That was another Martin Scorsese movie with Robert De Niro, and he's in quite a few Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese movies, so it's, uh, it's going to be kind of a trend. But he was also in A Bronx Tale, which is one that I don't feel like gets talked about enough as being a really great movie, but it is fucking solid. I would definitely recommend checking it out. And he was also in The Good Shepherd with Matt Damon and Robert De Niro. That one, I remember being really fucking slow and not as good as people acted like it was supposed to be. And I just, eh, I'm not, I'm good on that one. I don't really need to watch that. Next up, we have Marissa Tomei, who I have noted here is hot. And she plays Mona Lisa Vito. And she was in What Women Want with Mel Gibson. And that one... I don't know if that one would hold up, especially given that Mel Gibson's allegedly not a great person, you know? I just don't know that I could watch it and enjoy it as much anymore. And she was in Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, and she gets topless in that movie, I believe, and it is truly a sight to behold. She was in The Wrestler with Mickey Rourke, and that one is one that actually is on my list of movies that I'll probably never watch again. It wasn't a bad movie, it was just not a rewatchable movie, in my opinion. And she was also Aunt May in the Tom Holland Spider-Man movies that are the most recent iterations of the character. Everybody, you know, it's like the running gag on that, that everybody's always telling Peter how hot his Aunt May is and things like that, and it's, it's pretty amusing. Then we have Ralph Macchio, who plays Bill Gambini, and he was in the Karate Kid movies and those ones I only saw the first one and I liked the first one quite a bit. It was a solid teen movie, but it was, I wasn't really that into it to the point that I really wanted to watch other installments of the franchise. And he was also in The Outsiders, which is a movie that has just a ridiculous number of famous or now famous people in it. I mean, just so many up and coming actors in that movie and it's like, They're all together in this one fucking movie, and the movie is okay. I know the book was probably better, but I don't really remember the book that well. Then we have Mitchell Whitfield, who plays Sam Rothenstein, and he was actually Barry from Friends, and if you don't remember who Barry was, he is the guy that Rachel was supposed to get married to at the very beginning of the show, and Rachel ran out on the wedding, and so that was him, basically. And he's also done some voice acting work and things like that, but he's really not in many movies at all. Fred Gwynn plays Judge Chamberlain Haller, and he was in The Munsters, which, by the way, if he was still alive, I would recommend not talking to Fred Gwynn about The Munsters. It's just not a good... It was... He just really hated talking about it. He was not proud of that show, and he thought it was stupid, I think, but, I mean, it made his career, honestly, like it gave him a career. It was also in Pet Cemetery, which is one that is kind of like so ridiculous that I I like to watch and make fun of at times, but it's not a wholly awful movie. It's a Stephen King novel, so it's got at least the fundamental basics of a story to it, and that's good. But otherwise, I would say it's not a terrifically great movie. Then last but not least, we have Lane Smith, who plays Jim Trotter III, and he was in the original Red Dawn, which I've mentioned several times is a great fucking movie. He was in Son-in-Law with Paulie Shore, and that one is, I saw it too, like, I think I saw it when I was really young and I don't remember it, but I saw it again recently and it was not worth going back and revisiting, like, There are certain movies that you should be able to look at and say, yeah, you know what, maybe those Pauly Shore movies I don't really need to revisit. Maybe they won't be quite so great this time around. For casting notes, on the Dan Lebitard radio show, actor Jim Belushi admitted he regretted that he turned down the title role in this film. Danny DeVito and John Lovitz were considered for the role of Vincent Gambini. Christopher Lloyd was considered for the role of the judge. Lorraine Bracco was the first choice for the role of Mona Lisa Vito, but she declined the role. Will Smith auditioned for the role of Stan Rothenstein, and that is the... I mean, my god, that would have been so fucking weird if Will Smith was in this movie as that part. Like, it's just fucking wild to me. So for a plot synopsis, we have two New Yorkers accused of murder in rural Alabama while on their way back to college... Call in the help of one of their cousins, a loudmouth lawyer with no trial experience. For the tagline, we have a comedy of trial and error, and that's a little generic, but it's okay, it's not bad. All right, guys, let's just dive right into this fucking plot. So as the movie opens up, we're just seeing a couple of young guys. Bill is played by Ralph Macchio, and Stan is played by Mitchell Whitfield, and they're riding in the Alabama countryside. And they have a mess of shit in their back seat, and they're just kind of tooling around and you don't really know what they're doing. So they're smugly driving by these businesses and they finally decide to stop at this roadside gas station and they're cheaping out. They go into the store and they're like buying all of these really cheap foods. They're looking for off-brand stuff, trying to save money and stuff like that. And it's like, they're, just, they're grabbing as much as they can carry, and it's kind of hilarious just thinking about it. But anyone who's been in college knows this fucking game. Most generics are as good and even sometimes better than the name brands. And sure, some off-brands do suck, and it can be a real roll of the dice, but that's the chance you take, and sometimes you just eat it anyway, even if it sucks. I'd personally be checking expiration dates if I were these guys, especially at a gas station like this that doesn't look like they have too much grocery stock turnover at all. So they leave a seemingly innocent experience there, and realize that Bill accidentally took a can of food without paying because he'd mindlessly stuffed it in his jacket pocket to help him with carrying all of his stuff. So Stan criticizes Bill for this carelessness and fears that they could get in trouble, but... You notice that Stan isn't really suggesting that they turn back and apologize and just pay for it, so shut the fuck up, Stan. Get the hell out of here. Then a police cruiser shows up behind them and turns on his lights, and they take their sweet fucking time pulling over. Like, I'm sorry, but unless the road you're on doesn't have a shoulder, there's no reason for you to delay pulling over when an officer flips his lights on to indicate that he's making a traffic stop. That's just fucking basic Pull over 101, honestly. They finally stop, and the officer gets out and pulls out a shotgun and tells Bill and Stan to put their hands where he can see them, and this officer is absolutely not fucking around. He tells them to get out of the car, and next thing we know, they're at a lineup, and then we see Bill talking to the sheriff. Stan mentions that he can't believe this is all over a can of tuna. In the sheriff's office, Bill, of course, immediately apologizes and waives his rights and says he's willing to do whatever he has to to cooperate with the investigation and notes that Stan didn't do anything, all the while just thinking that they brought him there because of stolen food. The sheriff is obviously giddy as fuck about this and seems legitimately surprised by what he's hearing, and says that he can charge Stan with aiding and abetting since Stan didn't do anything to try and stop Bill. But Bill doesn't just say that Stan didn't see him take the food because it adds a little bit to the confusion and comedy of it all. Then we see Stan, who is much more high-strung and worried than Bill seems to be, and the sheriff's questioning him about all he's done and why he didn't try and stop Bill or try and leave the car when he found out. Question for all of you legal minds out there. In this scenario, where the police think Bill murdered someone with a deadly weapon and Stan just stood there, is he morally obligated to try and stop someone who has a weapon when he doesn't? Not really sure I follow the logic on this. I don't really quite understand how that could be possible. So we get this whole song and dance with them trying to explain their stories, and the sheriff is trying to understand where things went wrong, And it seems like something's missing, but at this point, as the viewer, you're taking the whole thing as, like, these cops really take their shoplifting a little over-serious in these parts. The sheriff asks Bill when, through the process of the story, did he actually shoot the gas station clerk? And Bill just sits there dumbfounded, like, I shot the clerk? I shot the clerk? But it sounds less like he's asking a question and more like he's making a confession in a very weird way. The sheriff gets called away and he's pissed because he was in the middle of a doggone confession and the sheriff is on that TV show my grandparents used to watch and I can't think of what the fuck it's called. Maybe it's Criminal Minds or Rosolian Isles or some fucking thing. So it dawns on Bill what's really going on and him and Stan sit next to each other and Bill tells Stan that they're being booked for murder and accessory to murder and Stan can't fucking believe it. Bill uses his phone call to get a hold of his mom, and stands sitting right there with him, and there are a lot of police officers around them, and they're talking all sorts of shit about what kind of cops they have in Alabama to his mom, and it's like, guys, come the fuck on, you've gotta at least be a little smarter than this, especially with realizing the damning statements you've made already while they were fucking grilling you, you know? You don't have to piss them off, too, that's not necessary. So Bill's mom reveals to him that they have an attorney in the family, and Stan asks who it is, and Bill says, My cousin Vinny. Copyright 1992. So Vinny, as played by Joe Pesci, shows up to town with his girlfriend Mona Lisa, as played by the lovely Marissa Tomei. There's that episode of Seinfeld where George fawns over Marissa Tomei, And I gotta say, he's not wrong. She is unbelievably appealing and she aged like a fine wine. She might actually be better looking when she's older than she is in this movie, but she's really good looking in this movie, so I'm not sure. They stop their car and Vinny is complaining about the tires feeling shaky and Mona Lisa says that it was when they hit a patch of mud that it started happening. A man comes and tells Vinny he's got mud in his tires and Vinny takes that quite literally and is just like, how could I get mud inside of my tires? How is that possible? And the guy says that it's a figure of speech, you know, and it's like, basically, it's inside the wheel or whatever, and it's throwing it out of balance. So Vinny asks Mona Lisa if she's ever heard of such a thing, and she says no, and Vinny essentially suggests that it must not be a thing because she knows cars and she's never heard of it. And, of course, this random Alabama man just laughs because... How could some dainty, hot New York gal like this know shit about cars? He says that they're famous for their mud around there, and they kind of, like, shrug it off like, oh, yeah, that's a fucking great thing to be famous for, buddy. To be fair, a mechanic in Alabama might not realize that that's actually a thing with snow in colder areas, and I've had that happen a few times, and it sounds like the same exact issue, but with mud. So, I mean, just because... They don't, just because she doesn't know about it doesn't mean it couldn't be a thing. It's just, she probably doesn't deal with it as much as she would in other states, so she doesn't really think about it. So Bill and Stan are getting checked into prison to await their trial. Can you imagine how fucking freaked out you'd be going to prison as an innocent person and knowing if things don't go right with your trial, you're stuck there and might be fucking executed? Fuck, that would just not be good, honestly. Bill and Stan talk about the things that they've heard about going on in prison, and kind of get their shit together, and Stan mentions being made someone's sex slave, and he's clearly super worried, so Vinny shows up to their cell while Bill is sleeping, and Stan thinks Vinny's legitimately going to make them his bitches and sexually assault them, and it's all great comedy, of course, this scene kind of requires that you ignore some things, like first... Vinny is wearing street clothes and jewelry and stuff, and he just doesn't look like a prisoner to me, at least not with what he's, I mean, I, I'm not saying he couldn't be a prisoner, I'm just saying in plain clothes it doesn't really make sense. And second, do they really let people, even lawyers, come back to the prisoner's cell to visit them? Isn't there usually like a visitation area designated for this? It just seems like bringing them back to the cell would be potentially dangerous and pose a major liability for the prison. I'm not sure, so I texted a friend who used to work for the Department of Corrections, and I was hoping he'd get back to me quickly, and he did. So he says to his knowledge, they rarely, if ever, take people back to the prisoner's cell, and there's usually a visitation area for everything. The setup of a visitation area is dictated by the level of security of the prison, and obviously the higher the level, the more stringent the security in a visitation area would be. Like a maximum security wouldn't have just some casual picnic tables and open interaction like a more minimum security prison would. But my source stated that this scenario is possible with dangerous criminals or people who might create a liability, so this movie gets a pass, I suppose. So Stan is freaking the fuck out and they're having this hilarious conversation and it's all playing out so hysterically as Stan is just not realizing who Vinny is and he thinks he's totally going to fucking rape him. So adding on to that, Vinny doesn't realize what Stan's perspective is, so he's feeding into it without knowing. The discussion turns angry and then Vinny wakes up Bill and Bill reveals that it's his cousin Vinny. So, finally, they go to a secluded visitation area and talk about the kind of cases Vinny has worked, and he has, like, legitimately no experience with actually going to trial at all. He's only been practicing for six weeks, but Bill points out that he's been out of law school for six years and failed the bar exam five times before he finally passed. So, naturally, Bill and Stan are not super excited about their chances of getting off in this case, But he's doing it for free, so there's that. And I've heard really bad things about public defenders, and they often have, like, too many cases, and it's just not ideal. Vinny goes to meet the judge, and the judge has to approve him as an out-of-state lawyer. So Vinny tells him where he went to school, and he sees the judge's Yale diploma framed behind him. So he kind of just starts fucking lying a lot about everything... He says he's been practicing law for 16 years and has defended many murder cases with varying degrees of success. And the judge is played by Fred Gwynn, I should mention that, and he's honestly great in this movie. He passed on not too long after this was released, like the following year, I think. The judge lets Vinny know how strict his courtroom is and how he'll expect him to know the law, so he hands him a giant law book and Vinny's like, "'Just this?' and laughs, and the judge is not amused at all. At their hotel, Vinny and Mona Lisa are hanging out, and she wants to know what she can do to help, and Vinny basically just says nothing. The next morning, they're awoken by a loud steam whistle at the sawmill, so they get up because of that, and they go to this shitty-ass diner, where the only selections on the menu are breakfast, lunch, and dinner, with prices, but no actual description of, ...of what food you're getting at all. So they both get breakfast, and the cook takes a scoop of some white substance. I don't know if it's like shortening or lard or what it is, but he puts it on the griddle, and shortly thereafter, he serves them their breakfast, and they ask him about what one of the substances are on their plates... And he tells them that they're grits, and Vinny says that he's heard of grits but has never seen them before, and he asks what they come from and how they're made, so the cook explains that it takes like 20 minutes to make them. So Vinny takes a tiny bite of them, and Mona Lisa snaps a little picture of him when he does, and then they go to the courtroom, and Vinny meets the prosecuting attorney named Trotter, and he's played by Lane Smith, who I probably know best as perry white from lois and clark the new adventures of superman i can't remember what this thing is called in law talk like what they're at at this courtroom but hopefully they'll say it and they do say it later i'm just building suspense here bill and stan arrive too and i've got to say every time i say bill and stan i always almost say bill and ted and it really bugs the shit out of me I really wish it wouldn't have been Bill and whoever in this movie. But I think this proceeding is actually called an arraignment. The judge comes into the room and asks Vinny how his clients plea. And Vinny responds, but doesn't stand up. And that's kind of basic, I would think. And the judge gets pissed and tells him to rise and speak clearly. Vinny stands up and goes to talk. And the judge interrupts him to ask him what the hell he's wearing. And he's got on cowboy boots... Black pants, a black button-up shirt, and a black leather jacket. The judge says that he's insulting the integrity of the court and that the next time he comes, he needs to dress nice, and he's pretty clearly not fucking around. The judge again asks how his clients plea, and Vinny is so remarkably ignorant of the whole judicial process that he actually starts explaining that his clients were taken by surprise and that they thought this whole thing was over a can of tuna. It's just unbelievable how little Vinny actually knows. Like, I knew more at the beginning of this movie than he knew just from watching movies and TV shows. So the judge has to explain the process to him and just wants him to enter a plea. Vinny still doesn't get it as the judge is spelling out the process to him and tells him that his answer options are guilty or not guilty, and he threatens him with being held in contempt of court if he doesn't give one of those answers. It's like... Damn, this whole thing would be fucking rough just legitimately not knowing what you're supposed to do when everyone else does. It would really not be ideal. But he's already lied and said he's got a lot of experience, so the judge has to be suspicious at this point anyway. Benny, of course, can't just say, not guilty, and has to say, I think I get the picture. So he gets held in contempt of court and taken to jail, Mona Lisa bails Vinny out of jail and she explains the high stakes nature of this case and how he didn't look like he knew what he was doing in the courtroom. So he says he's just going to learn on the fly and kind of make things up as he goes. And he just uses this car analogy to explain how it's a good learning experience for him. And I guess it makes sense. I mean, They both know cars, so he kind of uses that to bridge the gap to have her understand what he's talking about. Mona Lisa explains that they can't afford to keep bailing him out and says that she tried to hustle to get some extra money, but she got stiffed. So naturally, Vinny's like, what do you mean you got stiffed? So they go to the pool hall and confront the guy who's stifter. And the guy suggests that he could just kick Vinny's ass instead of coughing up the $200. I just love this fucking interaction with this guy and Vinny. It's just so great. Like Vinny isn't backing down even a little bit in front of these locals. Vinny agrees to kick the guy's ass and collect the money, but the guy doesn't actually have it. So I guess they just leave for now and are going to come back to it. Meanwhile, Bill and Stan are playing basketball at the prison and Stan is being very critical of Vinny and suggests that it shouldn't be so difficult and maybe they should fire him. Bill insists that the Gambini family is full of arguers and that they have just a leg up with that alone. Vinny and Mona Lisa are in their hotel at each other's throats about her not turning off the faucet, but it's clearly just like foreplay and they're totally gonna fuck soon because it's getting more intimate by the second. But we see how good Vinny can be in an argument where he knows his shit, and clearly all he needs to do is just learn the law. My God, Marissa Tomei is fucking irresistible, though. Honestly, I just love her. This older black woman at the trial is testifying that she saw two men leave the gas station in a green car with a white top, and she points to the defendants as being the men who she saw. This bigger white guy testifies that he was making breakfast and saw the two men go in the store, he heard a gunshot, and then he saw two men running out and get into the car. Bill and Stan both think that they're pretty much fucked based on what they're saying. Then another man with a biker mustache says that he saw the two men run out and peel away, and the car was all over the fucking road. The sheriff testifies that Bill said twice that he shot the clerk, which he did, but he meant those two instances as questions. And honestly, it doesn't really matter that he said that because that never comes back. They never like grill those two. Like what bugs me, I'll talk about it later maybe, but like what bugs me in this movie is they don't put Bill and Stan on the stand at all. And it's like, why wouldn't they be your major witnesses? You know what I mean? Why wouldn't they be the ones that are trying to explain themselves? So when Vinny gets the chance, he doesn't cross-examine for some reason, and we don't really know why, it just seems like he's defeated or something. And it's like, come on, man, at least fucking try and do something. And then before they leave the courtroom for the day, the judge asks Vinny about his clothes, and Vinny just says, you were serious about that? And gets held in contempt of court again. In the bus to the prison, Bill and Stan berate Vinny for not doing anything in court. Mona Lisa again bails Vinny out, and I just love her fucking accent. It's so fucking hilarious, and there's a moment where she's talking later, and I'm pretty fucking excited for when we get there. He tells her that as his fiance, she should support him and stand by him, and she's like, You were wonderful in there. The way you handled that judge, you're a smooth talker. You are... You ah. And they go back to the hotel, and Vinny tells her that he's worried and scared about the case. She tells him he should be scared, and that once he starts doing his thing, he's gonna be really great if he doesn't fuck up. They're awoken in the morning by a loud pig farm behind the hotel, and Stan is really pressing Bill to go along with trying a new lawyer. So Stan meets with the public defender while Bill meets with Vinny, and Bill tells Vinny that he's going with the public defender too, but Vinny tries to convince him not to give up, despite having fucked up thus far. He explains to Bill that the prosecutor has to build a case and likens it to building a house, but that his bricks are just a facade and they're not what he'll present them as and he'll see through them because they're innocent and he knows that they're lies. Vinny pleads with him to at least let him question one witness before switching. So Bill tries to convince Stan to keep him at least that long by bringing up when they were at this party and Vinny kept calling the magician on all of his tricks, which must have been a real fucking nightmare for the magician. So Vinny goes and sees the guy from the pool hall again, and he says that he has the $200, but Vinny asks him to bring it there, and asks him how he knows that it's not a bundle of ones with a 20 wrapped around it. He says it actually is 200 bucks. so Vinny asks him to fan it out and show it to him, and the bluff was called in this moment, so... The guy just fucking walked away. But realistically, Vinny could fucking really get the ball rolling with this guy and just kick the shit out of him right away instead of waiting around for him to actually have the money. So Vinny and Mona Lisa are again woken up in the middle of the night by a freight train that shakes their whole room. And the front desk says that it's not typical for that to happen at 5 a.m. So basically, this is just painting the picture of Vinny not being able to get a good night's sleep throughout this entire movie. Vinny meets the prosecutor Trotter and Vinny explains how he got into law. And then they get into talking about the case and Trotter says that he'd like to have the murder weapon, but otherwise he feels pretty good about the whole case. The prosecutor invites him to go hunting with him. And this is the fucking scene with Marissa Tomei. I fucking love it. So back at the hotel, Mona Lisa is not pleased to hear that Vinny is going hunting, but he wants to do it to maybe get a chance to know what the prosecutor trotter knows about the case he's hoping that maybe he'll get a chance to look at his files and i don't know that if this were actually necessary that trotter would just willingly hand over the files if he didn't have to why would he just give him the files if it wasn't a legal requirement of him like i mean if there's no legal obligation to do it why the fuck would trotter be dumb enough to help him out like that Vinny's worried about what he's gonna wear and Mona Lisa wants to know what he's gonna hunt. So he says Trotter has a lot of stuffed heads in his office and she's fucking mortified by this concept and she wants to know what kind of heads. And he's like, well, he's got a boar and a bear and a couple of deer. And this exchange is truly fucking comedy gold. And I wish I was bold enough to use clips because I can't really do the accent justice but she can't believe he would actually shoot a deer, but he says that he's a man's man and he could go deer hunting, like it's no big deal. She says, a sweet, innocent, harmless, leaf-eaten, doe-eyed little deer. So she storms into the bathroom and Vinny is still bitching about what to wear. And she comes out and says this, imagine you're a deer, you're prancing along, you get thirsty, you spot a little brook, you put your little dear lips down to the cool, clear water. BAM! A fucking bullet rips off part of your head. Your brains are laying on the ground in little bloody pieces. Now I ask you: would you give a fuck what kind of pants the son of a bitch who shot you was wearing? That's the best I could fucking do, guys. I'm so sorry, but I fucking love it and I wanted to share it. So Vinny is riding to go hunting with Trotter, and he just off the cuff says he'd love to get a look at Trotter's files, and Trotter is like, You would! Then Trotter immediately gets on his car phone to call his office and get Vinny a copy of his files, and Vinny is of course dumbfounded by this easy process that this was. He comes back to the hotel with Trotter's files, and Mona Lisa thinks that he stole them from him, but he reveals that Trotter just willingly gave them up. She's reading his law book from the judge, and he scolds her for reading it and takes it away. And she found out in the book that giving him the files is called disclosure. And by law, he has to do it or there could be a mistrial. So she's like basically already knowing more about this stuff than he does. Like basically, the law says the prosecutor is not allowed any surprises in court. So he goes and talks with all the witnesses and tries to dig up something he can use. And he's like taking pictures of this guy's windows, things like that. In the judge's office, the judge talks to Vinny and reveals that he talked to an office in New York, and they said that they can't find a record of any cases having been tried by a Vincent Gambini in the state. Vinny lies and says that it's because there was some famous actor near him named Vincent Gambini, so he went by the name Jerry Gallo, who is a well-known New York lawyer. Mona Lisa reveals to Vinny that Gallo is actually dead after he has this whole interaction and then trotter is letting them stay at his nice peaceful cabin and they of course argue because mona lisa is getting impatient with their engagement since vinnie said that they'd tie the knot when he won his first case and it's been 10 years and she does this hilarious bit where she's talking about how her biological clock is ticking and she says like this and she starts stomping her foot on the fucking porch and it's fucking great Vinny is, of course, frustrated by the numerous events in the plot of this movie alone, as well as many other life issues he already has. In the middle of the night, Vinny is awoken by a noise, and he's like, what in the fuck is that? And he goes outside in just his boxers, coat, and tennis shoes, and starts firing a revolver into the woods, And then the next thing you know, they're sleeping in the car, which honestly would make me way more uneasy. I wouldn't like that at all. Then it starts thunderstorming and it's like, well, fuck, they can't catch a break here. They go to leave and they're stuck in the mud. The tires are just fucking spinning and spinning in this mud and they can't get them to fucking go. And I guess I never realized that Joe Pesci was as short as he is. But now that I'm thinking about it, It does kind of track that that's like a thing with him. I just hadn't really let it dawn on me, I guess. So Vinny's suit gets all dirty and he has to shower and get a new one. And he sees the guy who stiffed Mona Lisa and punches him out and takes his money. He has to come to court in this shitty secondhand tuxedo that makes him look like a 1920s bellhop. The judge holds him in contempt again, but the trial proceeds anyway. And obviously Vinny is going to have to get his shit together here. Before too fucking long, anyway. Vinny is swearing and getting in all sorts of trouble with the judge. Then the public defender addresses the jury, and it's revealed that he has a very severe stutter, and it's very off-putting to everyone in the room. Stan is very frustrated by this and has lost all hope for this case. The big guy witness who is making breakfast takes the stand again, and basically he just says what he said before. You know, he says that he saw... The two men come in and come out and how he heard gunshots in between and all that stuff. The public defender tries to have a gotcha moment with the witness for needing glasses, but it's pointed out that they're reading glasses and that he needs nothing to see at distance. It's kinda like, yeah, you're an idiot public defender. Then Vinny examines him and tries to understand the witness's point of view during the time of the murder and he reveals that his view of the two men may have not been as good on their way out as it was on the way in. We get this hilarious exchange between Vinny and the judge, and Vinny uses the term Utes, and the judge is like, Yutes? What? What's a Ute? And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, your honor, youths. And apparently that's a thing that people say. I've never heard that happened in the wild, I've only heard it in movies, you know? Then Vinny asks the witness if he might have seen the men pull up and go into the store, and then maybe saw two different men come out, and the witness says that there wasn't enough time for all of that. Then Vinny asks him how he knew how much time it took, and it leads to discussion about him cooking grits, and he suggests that it only took about five minutes to make them, But Vinny knows that it takes 20 minutes, so the witness finally admits that he might have been mistaken. He talks to the biker mustache witness and points out that he had an extremely obstructed view of the gas station at the time of the murder due to his windows being dirty and there being trees in the way. The old black lady witness claims that she was wearing her glasses at the time of the incident, so she could have seen it all happen from 100 feet and her glasses are honestly thick as shit. Like, These are strong prescriptions. So Vinny takes one of those super long measuring tapes and extends it from the witness stand to just 50 feet at the back of the courtroom and asks her how many fingers he's holding up. And hilariously, in this moment, the judge says, let the record show that he's holding up two fingers before the lady can actually answer. And Vinny's like come the fuck on judge help me out here so he holds some fingers up again and she guesses wrong so the defense is pretty fucking stoked about it trotter brings in a surprise car expert but vinnie objects because they didn't have adequate warning and very succinctly and eloquently defends his point but for some reason the judge still says that it's overruled and it's like what the fuck i don't really understand why the judge won't sustain his objection it makes perfect sense so trotter starts asking the expert about these tire marks outside the gas station and they were the same model and that the rubber left behind from the skid marks was the same as the defendant's car's rear tire vinnie narrowly dodges another investigation by the judge who found out jerry gallo is actually dead by telling him that it's actually callow with a c i mean like how many times is this judge gonna fall for this Then at lunch, Vinny and Mona Lisa talk and she wants to help with the case and she gets upset with him because he's being kind of a dick to her and acts like her pictures are fucking useless. So she storms off and is not happy about it at all, as you might imagine, and she's not talking to him. So Vinny goes back to looking through his stuff. In court, he asks the expert and it turns out that the tire in question is the best selling tire out there and it sheds doubt on the testimony. But Vinny sits down looking at the pictures and has a revelation, and he needs Mona Lisa, so he has to force her into the courtroom just to testify. She gets on the stand, and Vinny starts to question her, and she's childishly, deliberately not looking in his direction. Like, he's standing in front of her, and she is turning her head away from him, as childishly as can be. It's fucking hilarious. Then Trotter suggests that Mona Lisa might not be a car expert, and he wants to voir dire her to determine her level of expertise in the automotive field. He asks her about her current profession, and she's an out-of-work hairdresser, but she reveals that, like, all of the men in her family are highly qualified mechanics, and she worked in her father's garage as a mechanic for a long time, doing a lot of different things with cars, and seems to know her shit. So Trotter asks her what the correct ignition timing would be on a 1955 Bel Air Chevrolet with a 327 cubic inch engine and a four barrel carburetor. She says it's a trick question because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55 and it couldn't have a four barrel carburetor by then either. So the prosecution lets the defense proceed and Vinny shows her the picture of the skid marks and she has a revelation and realizes what Vinny is trying to get her to notice. She says the marks weren't made by a 1964 Buick Skylark, but they were made by a 63 Pontiac Tempest. She can tell the car that made the tire marks had traction, and the 64 Skylark did not. Oh my god, I just love how it plays out with Vinny asking questions, and Mona Lisa is now very enthusiastic and excited to share her knowledge, And it's a nice way for her and him to make up. So Vinny recalls the original car expert to ask him if what Mona Lisa was saying jived with his knowledge, and he says that it does. He recalls the sheriff, and it's revealed that two men were picked up in another town matching the defendant's description and had the same color 63 Pontiac Tempest and a gun in their possession that also matched the ballistics of the bullet. So the prosecution dismisses the case, and everyone is very happy, but Vinny is trying to flee because the judge has found out who he is, but apparently the name he gave him was actually a good living lawyer, and the judge says that he was honored to have worked with him. It turns out that Mona Lisa actually had a friend send in false information to the judge, so now Vinny and Mona Lisa are gonna actually get married, and they're out on the road again, presumably going back home. Roll credits... Praise for this movie so fucking much. The sense of humor this movie has is stupendous. The way the plot sets things up and has them pay off later is fantastic. Joe Pesci is great, but Marisa Tomei makes this movie for me in more ways than one. The character actors are also amazing here and play their parts perfectly. Criticism, I honestly don't know that I have any complaints about My Cousin Vinny. I think it's a movie anyone could enjoy, honestly. So a little bit of trivia... When Vinny is trying to explain his real name to Judge Haller, he knocks over the judge's chessboard. This was accidental, but director Jonathan Lynn thought it was so funny and authentic that he decided to leave it in the film. The misunderstanding between Vincent Gambini and Judge Haller regarding the two Utes was in fact a real conversation between Joe Pesci and director Jonathan Lynn. Lynn, who is British, at first had a hard time understanding Pesci's pronounced New York accent. The American Bar Association's publication, the ABA Journal, ranked the film number three on its list of the 25 greatest legal movies. Number one was To Kill a Mockingbird, and I'd tell you what number two was, but The ABA has a paid website, so I would have had to have gotten a subscription in order to tell what the fuck number two was. Director Jonathan Lynn actually has a law degree and insisted the film's legal proceedings be realistic. In fact, many attorneys and law professors have praised the film for its accurate depiction of trial strategy and courtroom procedure, especially with regard to presenting expert witnesses at trial. In fact, the film has been screened at some law schools to illustrate courtroom procedures. The exchange between the prosecutor and the automotive expert about the equipment used to analyze the tires was taken almost verbatim from an actual court transcript. The witness asked how he analyzed the evidence, answered, I have a dual-column gas chromatograph, Hewlett-Packard model 5710A, with flame-analyzing detectors. The DA quipped, does that thing come turbocharged? And the witness answered, only on the floor models. This appears in lots of funny things said in court collections. Shortly after her Academy Award win for Best Supporting Actress in the 65th Annual Academy Awards from 1993, a rumor started circulating that Marissa Tomei had won by mistake because presenter Jack Palance had incorrectly read out the wrong name. This is a highly unlikely occurrence. The Academy specifically has two officials stationed offstage to intervene and read out the correct name if such an event were to transpire. Such an event didn't occur until the Oscars from 2017 when Warren Beatty was given the wrong card and Faye Dunaway mistakenly announced La La Land from 2016 as Best Picture. Instead of the actual winner, Moonlight, from 2016, the error was corrected on the telecast in about two minutes. Joe Pesci was 49 while Marissa Tomei was 27 when this movie was released. And I've got to say, that's not really shocking to me at all. They both look about that age. When the judge warns Vinny that he'd better show up in court with a full knowledge of Alabama law, he's setting Vinny an impossible task. Alabama has the longest constitution of any state in the country, clocking in at more than 300,000 words. The U.S. Constitution is only a bit more than 4,000 words. Temperatures exceeded 100 degrees during the courtroom scenes, which were filmed in the midst of a Georgia summer in a converted warehouse with a corrugated metal roof. Joe Pesci stands 5'4", while Fred Gwynn stands 6'5". Little bit of IMDb nuggets, in the film, Marissa Tomei's character has the last name Vito. This could be a partial reference to Joe Pesci's famous role of Tommy DeVito in Goodfellas from 1990. So I guess we should just fucking speculate wildly about what facts might be true and just throw them in the IMDb trivia section. Is that what it is? Anywho, now moving on to info and ratings. Runtime, 120 minutes. This movie was rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, 11 million. Opening weekend, 7.4 million. Worldwide gross, 64.1 million. IMDb rating, 7.6. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 87%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 87%. Personal rating, five out of five stars. This is one of my all-time favorite comedies. I absolutely love it. Now moving on to Stand By Me, released on August 22nd, 1986, based on the novella The Body by Stephen King, directed by Rob Reiner, who also directed This Is Spinal Tap, which is a great mockumentary, probably the first one that I know of that was made. I don't know that they had mockumentaries before that one. I'm probably wrong, but that's what I remember. Love that fucking movie. It's a fucking great, it's a story about this rock band and just kind of like a fake documentary that is following them because they're a fake rock band. Then he did The Princess Bride, and that's a great fucking, I mean, that's a classic, honestly. I fucking love The Princess Bride. It's got so many great qualities, I just absolutely love it. He did When Harry Met Sally, which is one of my all-time favorite comedies as well. That's got Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, and oh man, I just fucking love it. He did Misery, which is a good one to watch on a snowy winter's day. I really enjoy it. I haven't seen it in a long time, honestly, but it's it's very good if I remember right. And then for writers, we have Bruce A. Evans and Reynold Gideon. For the producers, we have Bruce A. Evans, Reynold Gideon, and Andrew Scheinman. For the score, we have composer Jack Nietzsche. I don't know if that's the right pronunciation at all, but I'm going with it. He did the score for The Exorcist, and that one's fucking solid. That's a really good score. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is another great movie, and it's actually, like, I don't even remember the score to that movie, so maybe that's not a big credit of his. Then we have the cast, starting with Will Wheaton who plays Gordon Gordy Lachance, and he was in Star Trek, and he also had a recurring part as himself on Big Bang Theory, and that's just not a show that I enjoy very much at all. Then we have River Phoenix, who plays Chris Chambers, and he was in Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, and he played young Indiana Jones in that. He was also in a few other movies that I need to check out, like Running on Empty, My Own Private Idaho, and Sneakers. But I don't know if those are any good. So I'm not recommending them. I'm just saying I need to check them out. Corey Feldman plays Teddy Duchamp, and he was in Friday the 13th, the final chapter, which ultimately was not even close to the final chapter. He was in Gremlins with Phoebe Cates, and I seem to remember that one being okay. But I saw it a lot later in my life than I think most people saw it that I know. So it's like I wasn't necessarily quite as spectacular for me. He was in The Goonies. That's probably another one that he's best known for is just... And that's another one that I didn't see until I was much, much older. So it's like I didn't have any frame of reference for that being a good movie. And then it's like I watched it and it was like, yeah, this is kind of made for kids. Like, this is not for me. Then we have Jerry O'Connell, who plays Vern Tessio. And he was in that movie Joe's Apartment, which I believe was the first ever mtv films movie and it was fucking terrible it was about cockroaches taking over an apartment not good he was also in jerry Maguire, which i enjoy to an extent but tom cruise kind of drags it down for me i'm not gonna lie then we have richard dreyfus who plays grown-up gordy slash the narrator he was in mr holland's opus previously covered on this podcast i really love that one it's a classic he was also in Jaws, which is a great one. It's just highly suspenseful, very enjoyable. It's just, I mean, it's it's the best shark movie out there, without question. Then we have Kiefer Sutherland, who played Ace Merrill, and he was in 24, and I've never seen a single episode of that show, and I don't really care. I don't think I need to. John Cusack plays Denny Lachance, and he was in Better Off Dead, which is a great one. It's a very silly movie but it's highly enjoyable. It's, it's just a really good time. And he was in High Fidelity, previously covered on this podcast, and that one is another classic. I really like it. For casting notes, Ethan Hawke and Sean Astin auditioned for the role of Chris. For the plot synopsis, four kids take a journey on foot in hopes of finding the body of a missing boy. For the tagline, this is longer than the synopsis, by the way. For some, it's The Last Real Taste of Innocence and the first real taste of life. But for everyone, it's the time that memories are made of. Okay, I I don't like that. That's way too fucking long. Just shorten it up. All right, let's just dive right into the plot of this movie. So Richard Dreyfus's Gordy Lachance opens up the story, sitting in his vehicle looking at a newspaper headline. The story is about someone named Chris Chambers having been killed, and he seems very heartbroken by it. He begins to tell the story of how he was 12 the first time he saw a dead body in the summer of 1959. So we flash back to that year and see young Gordy as played by Will Wheaton. He's walking through his small town and he goes up to a treehouse to meet his two friends, Chris, as played by the late great River Phoenix, and Teddy as played by Corey Feldman. I really need to do some fantasy casting of today's movies that could have starred River Phoenix had he lived, you know, because he was a very gifted young actor. I thought he was really good and... Joaquin Phoenix is obviously, his brother is very good, so, I mean, that says a lot. So they're playing cards and telling jokes, and the narrator tells us that Teddy is a lost cause. We find out about how Teddy's dad once held his ear to a stove and almost burned it off. He says Chris was their leader, and he's also got very little going for him, and comes from a very broken home. So most people in town just know the members of this Chambers family as being trouble, And then their other friend Vern, played by Jerry O'Connell, shows up and he's a little chubby and he's all out of breath but needs to tell them about something that he just found out. And Vern asks them all if they can camp out that night and then reveals that they have a chance to go see a dead body. The narrator explains how Vern had buried all of these pennies near his house and drew a treasure map to find them, and then one day his mother was cleaning out his room and threw out the map, so Vern has been digging random holes everywhere. I just feel like you'd probably at least have some fucking idea where you buried them, even if it was a while ago, Vern. Come the fuck on. But as Vern was digging to find them under the porch... He heard his brother Billy and a friend talking about seeing this body and where to find it. You see, Billy and the friend couldn't actually see Vern because he was under the porch and they were on the porch, so that's how Vern got away with learning the information and having them not know that he found out. Evidently, this kid Ray Brower had gone out to pick blueberries one day, and no one had seen him since, and they assumed this was who the dead body was. The boys hypothesized that he was potentially hit by a train, and Vern was able to ascertain where the body was based on his brother and the friend talking, like he knew the location well enough that he knew that they could get there. So our boys want to be the first ones to find the body so they can get their name in the paper or be on TV or both. So they lay out a plan of how they can do it without arousing suspicion, and the narrator tells about how things at Gordy's house had been for a while since his brother was killed in an accident. And it's like his parents just lifelessly drone around and they rarely talk to or acknowledge Gordy at all. To be clear, the narrator is actually grown up Gordy, but for the ease of explanation, I'm just going to act like the narrator is just a nameless narrator and isn't actually one of the characters of the story because it's easier. Gordy goes into his brother Denny's room to get something and he has a flashback to Denny as played by John Cusack who gifts him a baseball cap. And it seems like his brother and him were very close with each other and Denny looked out for Gordy and then the story is interrupted by Gordy's dad. The dad seizes an opportunity to bitch about the kind of kids that Gordy hangs out with and asks why he can't have friends like Denny did. He talks about Chris having stolen some milk money too. You know, the dad is just not a fan of any of his friends. Gordy defends his friends, but his dad thinks that they're all bad and leaves it at that. Gordy and Chris go and look at a gun Chris brought that he swiped from his dad and Gordy asks him if it's loaded and Chris says no. Then Gordy pulls the trigger and a bullet fires and they run away screaming. Gordy is freaked out and makes Chris swear that he didn't know it was loaded. Kiefer Sutherland plays a fucking great villain type in Ace who is friends with Chris's brother. They stop Gordy and Chris and give them a hard time. Little trivia on that. To keep in character while off-camera, Kiefer Sutherland often picked on Will Wheaton, River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Jerry O'Connell. But it's like, it can't be that hard to get into character as a bully, so was that really fucking necessary, Kiefer Sutherland, honestly? The boys set off to start following the train tracks, and they figure it's about 20 to 30 miles to the town they're looking for the body in. Vern is such a fucking great dork in this, and they realize that they forgot to bring food, and Vern only has seven cents because he hasn't found his pennies yet. And it's, like, fucking hilarious. Vern just, he brought a comb for the guys to use just in case they wound up on TV. Teddy decides he wants to dodge an oncoming train, and they have to force him off the tracks because he seemingly has a death wish. And it's like, yeah, that shit always sounds kind of like a cool idea when you're a kid, but... You just don't realize that you really may actually die. You don't really believe you're gonna, but you might. Then we see the bad guys led by Ace, and they're smashing mailboxes, and the two guys from earlier with Vern, who were talking about the body, are there, but they're not saying what's on their mind. Our boys sneak through a junkyard and then stop and hang out, and they're worried about this notorious junkyard dog named Chopper, who is known to specifically attack testicles when sicked on a trespasser by the junkyard owner. They sit and talk about some girl's tits getting bigger on a TV show they watch, and it's like, yeah, that's legitimately good preteen conversation. Like, that's totally realistic, honestly. Anyway, they all flip coins to decide who has to go get food, and it's Gordy that gets to go. It's not clear if Gordy's brother Denny died in a car accident, or if he was in the military. I thought he said... It was a jeep accident in the beginning, but I honestly, there was things that cast doubt on that. I don't know. But this guy at the store asks if he's Denny's brother and he says that he's sorry to hear what happened. And then there's another flashback and Gordy's family is all gathered around the dinner table and the dad is obsessed with Denny doing well in football. Of course, we get another heightened tragedy moment where we're told just what a great brother Denny really was to Gordy. After the flashback at the store, the man behind the counter asks Gordy if he plays football or anything, and Gordy says no, but you can just tell that Gordy has this looming fear that he's never going to do anything with his life, and that he has big shoes to fill from Denny. Gordy gets the food and comes back to find his friends missing from the junkyard, and wouldn't you know it, the junkyard guy sicks the dog on Gordy, who just barely gets to his friends on the other side of the fence in time. The boys are still standing at the fence when they realize the dog is not quite the legend it's made out to be, and it's honestly too small to be threatening even to kids. Like, it's an angry dog, but it's a lot smaller than you'd expect a junkyard dog to be. The owner approaches the fence and recognizes them and begins antagonizing Teddy for having a crazy dad up in the nut house and having burnt Teddy's ear on the stove. Teddy is obviously upset by the man calling his dad a loony, and says he stormed the beach at Normandy, and Teddy threatens to kill the guy. The owner also points out that he knows who all of them are, and he's going to call their parents, and they're going to know what they're doing. So this is the small town face recognition that feels more realistic to me. Like, I love It's a Wonderful Life, but that's supposed to be a tiny little town called Bedford Falls, where everyone knows each other, it seems. But by the end of the movie, in what's supposed to be real-life Bedford Falls, many people don't even know the main character at all, and it doesn't really make sense to me. Like, all of a sudden, they're like, who the hell are you? You know, it's just like, what the, you don't know who this guy is, you know what I mean? Like, come the fuck on. Teddy is very emotional and teary-eyed as the guys try and cheer him up, and he just says to drop it because he clearly doesn't want to talk about it. He apologizes for getting all worked up, and Gordy points out that maybe this trip shouldn't really be a good time party type thing. Like, it should be more somber, because they're going to see a dead body. With the bad guys, they're listening to the radio, and they're talking more about the missing kid, and they're all betting on when or how they'll actually find him. Is Will Wheaton just a scrawnier kid, or is he, like, way younger than River Phoenix? Don't worry, I googled it and River Phoenix was about 15 when this came out and that would put him at two years older than Will Wheaton who was about 13 when this came out and honestly that's a huge development period in a kid's life so honestly it makes sense that Will Wheaton would be that much smaller with only two years difference but it does seem like Gordy is just a fucking boy and Chris is legitimately what I'd call a young man. The two of them talk about whether it's a good idea for Gordy to remain friends with these guys, and Chris sees his potential and how he could be a great writer someday. Chris just doesn't want him to waste what talents he has just because his parents don't necessarily see it. And here we are, they've come to the famous train trestle or bridge or whatever you want to call it, and they start talking and no one knows when the next train is due, And Chris suggests that they could go to another safer bridge downriver, but it's five miles there and five miles back. Teddy doesn't care for walking an extra 10 miles when this will only take them 10 minutes to get across. But this bridge they're at now is pretty fucking scary since it's like 100 feet down to the water below and there's nowhere else to get away from the train if it comes. Like You can't just dive out of the way to get away from it. You'd be fucking effectively dying if you tried to. So they slowly make their way across and Vern is legitimately on his hands and knees crawling and he drops the comb out of his breast pocket and he's fucking devastated. Gordy feels the tracks to hopefully get a sense of how far a train might be and wouldn't you know it, a train comes. Chris and Teddy are way ahead and fine but Gordy and Vern have to make a break for it and just narrowly miss getting hit by the train. Fun tidbit on that. The train scene took a full week of shooting, making use of four small adult female stunt doubles with closely cropped hair, made up to look like the film's protagonists. Plywood planks were laid across the trestles to provide a safer surface on which the stunt doubles could run. Another thing about that, in the shot where Gordy and Vern are running toward the camera with the train right behind them, the train was actually at the far end of the trestle with the two actors on the opposite end. The crew used a 600mm long focus lens that, when shot at the telephoto end, compressed the image so much that it made it look like the train was right behind them. So it was pretty fucking intense with their run-in with the train. And also, this movie has a pretty great soundtrack. It's kind of like we get to hear it while they're walking around. They have a portable radio, and these songs just keep coming up. They're all, like, 1950s hits, and it's pretty fucking solid. It's a nice touch. They stop and make a fire and eat, and everyone is smoking cigarettes afterwards. Neat tidbit on that. At the insistence of director Rob Reiner, who is an avid non-smoker who campaigned for anti-smoking laws in California, the cigarettes smoked by the boys were made from lettuce leaves. Chris convinces Gordy to tell a story for them, and he tells one about this fat kid named David Hogan who gets bullied at school. He gets called fat and lardass and... Any other mean overweight names? The kid David gets an idea for revenge, and then it flashes to him at a pie-eating contest, and everyone's being a bunch of dicks openly to him there. I could never do a pie-eating contest like this. I mean, they're diving their faces directly into the pies, and I hate to get that much shit all over my face. It's just not ideal. I might do it for like chicken wings sometimes, but I'm still avoiding it at all costs, honestly. Anyway, they seem to start to legitimately cheer David on by chanting lard ass at him, but obviously that's still pretty fucking mean. He goes backstage between rounds and chugs a bottle of what I guess is liquor. Then he comes back and before too long in eating his next pie, he starts to projectile vomit on the guy next to him, who is the previous year's pie eating champion. And it sets off a chain reaction of people barfing on each other at the event and and we're led to believe that the smell was quite bad. Fun factoid, the vomit used in the lard ass story was made from cottage cheese and blueberry mix. Teddy says he thinks the story needs a better ending and Gordy can't really think of one and it's like, shut the fuck up, Teddy. It's a good story for the setting. We don't really need to know how the pie eater came home and masturbated to a magazine or some shit like that. The guys are all talking around the campfire about different things, and Vern says that if he could only eat one thing for the rest of his life, it would be cherry pez. They also argue whether or not Goofy is a dog. All in all, I would say that this feels a lot like the kinds of conversations that kids would be having at this age. You know, it's just like it all feels really authentic and realistic, especially the talk in the junkyard when they were talking about the girls' tits and getting bigger and shit. Yeah, that's definitely. That age talk to me. Then they start to hear coyotes howling, so they have Teddy stay up with the gun to stand guard while they sleep. Chris looks over and Gordy is dreaming about Denny's funeral, and his dad puts his hand on Gordy's shoulder and says, it should have been you, Gordon. And he wakes up. And man, that is a fucked up feeling to have on your shoulders, especially if your parents actively act like that's kind of how they feel. Gordy tells Chris he didn't cry at Denny's funeral and that he really misses him, and Chris just says, I know, and tells him to go back to sleep. Gordy stays up talking to Chris, and Chris talks about himself and his family's reputation around town. He talks about this time with the stolen milk money that Gordy's dad mentioned earlier, and everyone just assumed that he took it and didn't even ask him and just suspended him. He reveals that he did take it, but he felt bad and tried to give it back, and he gave it to this old lady who ultimately spent the money on herself and didn't tell anyone that he gave it back, which is pretty fucked up. Chris gets super emotional and wishes he could go somewhere nobody knows him, and then it cuts and skips to the next day. Little trivia on that, in the campfire scene in which Chris breaks down, Rob Reiner was sure River Phoenix could do better. He asked him to think of a time in his own life when an adult had let him down and use it in the scene, which Phoenix did. Upset and crying, he had to be comforted by the director afterwards. The result of Phoenix's exercise is the scene that ended up in the final cut. Gordy sees a deer crossing the railroad tracks the next morning and elects not to share the story with his friends, and even the narrator is like, yeah, I never told anybody about that, and it's like, I don't really know if that was supposed to be something I was picking up on, like deeper meaning or something like that, but I didn't really get it. So they're back walking the train tracks again, and they come to an opening where they can cut across this valley and be there in like an hour, or follow the train tracks and go way out of their way. Vern wants to stick to the tracks, of course, because he's fucking Vern. So they vote to cross the valley Then we see the bad guys talking and the two guys are spilling the beans about knowing where the dead body is and it's pretty clear that the secret is out now. The guys gear up and Ace's plan is to bring their fishing stuff with them and just say that they happened upon the body if the police find them. Our boys come to a swamp and they have to figure out how to get around it but Chris pushes a stick into the water near the edge and says it's shallow enough to walk despite clearly not checking far enough out. They start to walk across and immediately the water is much deeper as they get a few steps out and they just fucking collapse into the water. So they're all out in the water, fucking pissed off about what's happened. Neat fact on that, the pond the boys fall into was a man-made pool because the crew wanted them to be safe and secure and did not want to put them in a real pond because they did not know what could be in it. However, Corey Feldman stated in an interview that the joke of the whole thing was the pool was built, buried, and filled with water in the beginning of June, and by the time they got to film the scene, it was the end of August. So it had been out in the woods for three months, and they really didn't know what was in it anyway. Then, as they're playing around, they realize that they've got leeches on them, and they all pull them off, and Gordy gets one in his privates and removes it, and then he faints. Trivia on that, contrary to urban legend, the leeches were fake. They were molded latex stuck on with rubber cement, which the boys found irritating on their skin, and the red marks are made with red makeup. Will Wheaton recounted in a 2000 interview that the tenacious cement with red coloring mixed into it to simulate blood caused them to be denied admission to a hydrotube water slide after that day's filming because it looked like a contagious skin disease. More on that in an interview by Stephen King in the special features section of the DVD, he reveals that the scene with the leeches, which is straight from his novella, actually did happen to him when he was a child. The guys start arguing about whether they should go back, but they decide to press on. It seems like Gordy is obsessed with seeing the body. So back with the bad guys, they're drag racing, and Ace psychotically doesn't move for an oncoming truck just to show how dangerous he really is. Our boys come to the supposed location of the body, and they find it lying there on the ground, and they're all pretty taken aback to actually see it. Gordy starts freaking out asking why Denny had to die and says it should have been him and that his dad hates him. Chris tries comforting him but it's not really working initially. The bad guys show up and they want the body. Ace threatens Chris and company with a switchblade but Gordy fires the gun and says nobody's taking the body. There's quite a showdown between Gordy and Ace and Ace ultimately backs down but says that they won't forget what happened there. Chris razzes Gordy for his shit talk and they decide to make an anonymous phone call to inform the authorities about the body. They walk all the way back to town and each of them parts ways and says they'll all see each other at school. The narrator says that Teddy and Vern drifted away from their group and went on to have their own separate lives and whatnot. Chris lingers with Gordy, and the narrator tells how he toughed it out and made it through school, and went to college with Gordy, and then became a lawyer. Then he explains how a week ago in present day, Chris went into a fast food place and tried to break up an argument in the line where one guy pulled a knife, and Chris ended up getting stabbed and killed almost instantly. We see grown-up Gordy typing the story on his very 80s computer, and his kid asks him if he's ready to go, and he leaves and Stand By Me by Benny King plays, and we roll credits. So praise for this movie, the performances by mostly young actors were spectacular. The main story's simplicity, it was all this movie really needed as a backbone. The realistic dialogue and friendships really help this movie feel grounded. The 1950s soundtrack is actually exceptional. I fucking love it. Criticism, I don't know, maybe just more 50s songs. I guess that's one thing I could say. A little bit of trivia. After director Rob Reiner screened the movie for Stephen King, he noticed that King was visibly shaking and wasn't speaking. He left the room and upon his return told Reiner that the movie was the best adaptation of his work that he'd ever seen. Kiefer Sutherland claimed in an interview that in one of the locations of the film a renaissance fair was being held and the cast and crew attended and bought some cookies. Unfortunately the cookies turned out to be laced with pot and two hours later the crew found Jerry O'Connell high and crying somewhere in the park. River Phoenix. Corey Feldman, Will Wheaton, and Jerry O'Connell got into a bit of mischief at the hotel where they were staying during the filming of this movie. This included throwing all the poolside furniture into the pool, Wheaton fixing video games in the lobby so they could play them for free, and Phoenix, spurred on by the other boys, unknowingly covered Kiefer Sutherland's car in mud, only discovering whose car it was when Sutherland confronted a scared and nervous Phoenix about it later. For info and ratings, we have a runtime of 89 minutes. This movie is rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America. Budget, 8 million. Opening weekend, 243,000. Worldwide gross, 52.3 million. IMDb rating, 8.1. Rotten Tomato Critics score, 92%. Rotten Tomato Audience score, 94%. Personal rating, 5 out of 5 stars. It's short and sweet, and it's just to the point. It's a great little story. It's not like some big, long epic or something, but it's it's got what you need. It's a solid one. I really like it. All right, everyone. Well, I hope you enjoyed that today. And here I was thinking this was going to be an embarrassingly short episode. And lo and behold, it's as long as most of my other ones have been lately. So, all right. Well, let me know if you got any suggestions or requests, and I'll obviously consider entertaining them. Okay, have a good rest of your day. Bye now. Brandon at Random Reviews is written, recorded, produced, edited, and engineered by Brandon Griffiths. The theme music is performed by Augusto Diniz and was acquired by way of Fiverr.com.